It is such a joy and a blessing for us to be together here on the first of the week. Nearly 2,000 years ago, this text that we read, Jesus walked out of the tomb on the first day of the week. And then, as the text on the screen there shows, about 30 years later, Paul, Luke, and several others met together in the city of Troas, remembering that first of the week that Jesus walked out of the tomb as they gathered together to break bread, to remember his body and his blood, as we've just done a few moments ago. It is an enormous joy for us to be able to be together on the first of the week. I'm so grateful to see all of you who are here. There are some faces I haven't seen in a while. I'm thankful for that. This new facility affords some blessings in that sense. It's also tinged with sadness. There are some faces that I believe could be here that I'm not seeing. And uh, some of you may be online. I can't tell who's online with us or not. But there is a blessing in being together physically that the Lord has prepared. And I'd like for us to contemplate that a little bit today. I have this journal up there uh, of Luke. He is one who researched uh, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, both the book of Acts and his gospel uh, in reverse order, Luke and then the book of Acts. I'd like for us to research, guided by that same spirit, a little bit about what the Bible has to say and some other things relative to that about the first of the week, specifically in the end what God has to say about how important it is that we should be together. I want to encourage you to really consider the kind of commitment you've made to being together with the saints on the first day of the week. I want to challenge you to consider how deep your commitment may be in that area. As we look at what the Bible says about the first day of the week, I want to begin uh, just by thinking about how often this concept of the first of the week does come up, this phrase specifically mentioned in John 20. We just saw it in Matthew. We see it in Mark as well. In Acts 20, it's in 1 Corinthians 16. We'll be looking at these texts in a little bit. And certainly it's been our personal practice and the practice of the vast majority of those who claim to follow Christ all down through the centuries. There are some who claim to follow Christ, who don't meet on the first of the week, some that uh, regard Saturday as the day they ought to meet. There are some who don't have any kind of a special significance to any of the days. But the vast majority of those who claim to follow Christ, for some reason, have chosen to meet together on the first of the week. And I'd like to suggest that there's good reason for doing that. It's not just a choice that we've made. God has said the significance to this day. And so I'd like just to examine biblically this issue of the first day of the week. The first day of the week is Sunday. We're not going to find that word in our Bible. Sunday uh, is not uh, a Greek or even a Latin word. It's not a word that we would find in our earlier, or a Hebrew word. It's not a word we'd find in our earlier uh, versions of these Bibles. But the first day of the week is Sunday. I want to start out by saying it is not Saturday. (laughs) Uh, Saturday is the Sabbath, and some groups have mistakenly, I believe, called Sunday the Christian Sabbath. I understand the meaning behind that, what they're trying to get at, but that is not a biblical idea. Sabbath is the last day of the week. It is the seventh day, and we'll see that clearly defined in Scripture. To go with me to Genesis chapter 2, for example. After the week of creation, when we open the, the second chapter of Genesis, we're looking down specifically at the end of this work that God has done. I believe these verses really belong with the first chapter. They're sort of the conclusion of the first chapter. On the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. The very word uh, seventh day here is Shabbat. It's Sabbath. 
It's the Hebrew for this seventh day. We see the same thing in Exodus 20 uh, when the Ten Commandments are handed down. And I think this is significant. We'll talk about this in just a moment. Starting at verse 8. Exodus 20 starting at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day, the seventh day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the Sabbath day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So what we see clearly in this is that Sabbath means rest, and it actually follows six days of work. He lines that out in the commandment. You will work six days, but then you'll rest. God has given you this rest. And he was certainly, as we learn in Deuteronomy, giving them a rest that they had not had for 400 years as slaves under Pharaoh's hand. And so God was showing them that he's fair and understands their need for rest and is giving them rest. He's the God of rest. Now, certainly Jews would be an authority on the subject. Romans chapter 3, verse 2 says they were given the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the word of God. They understand more clearly, perhaps than anyone else, what the Sabbath is. And on Jewish calendars, Sabbath is always the last day. Maybe I'm belaboring this point, but I want us to understand that Sunday is not a Sabbath in the sense that the counting of the day of the weeks, at least. Sunday is Sunday. It's not Saturday. Interestingly enough, even in some of the more ancient languages, Greek and Latin both present some, I think, interesting linguistic evidence. The seventh day is from a form of the word Sabbath. In the Greek, it's sabato, and in Latin, it's sabbatum. But it's interesting what the first day is called in Greek and in Latin. In Greek, it's kyriakis. Latin, it's dominica. In the Latin-based languages, Portuguese and Spanish, both of them call it domingo. Those both have a reference to dominion or lordship. And kyriakis in Greek, which I'm probably butchering, it also means lord. And so it may be a reference to even what's used there in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, Kyriakis, is what uh, uh, John refers to there, that he may be referring to Sunday, the first of the week, when he mentions that. I can't be definite about that. But at least in the Greek and Latin, there's this idea of the day of our Lord that comes out in the first day of the week in these ancient languages. Biblically, the first day follows Sabbath. Therefore, it's going to be what we would call Sunday, we just saw that in Matthew chapter 28, we see that also in Mark, that after the Sabbath, very early on the first day of the week, they go to the tomb and Jesus has already risen. So we see very clearly, biblically, that it's the day after the Sabbath that we're talking about when we speak about Sunday. Of course, it's also not Monday. Why do I say that? Well, because sometimes we treat Monday as though it's the first day of the week. (laughs) We're talking about the first day of the week and the blessing of being together on the first day of the week in a global economy Monday seems like it's the first day. In fact, the International Organization for Standardization back in 1988 declared that Monday is officially now the first day of the week. Well, I don't know who they are, who they think they are, but uh, God's the one who declared the order of the days of the week. They are a very atheist organization. Not surprisingly, Russia, an officially atheist nation, adopted quickly that system. Russian calendars begin on Monday. Their weekly calendars do. Many of you, when you go to buy an agenda, will find that business agendas start on Monday, and they'll have Saturday and Sunday sort of sequestered off in a corner. 
I'm very frustrated by that sometimes when I'm trying to get an agenda that I can write down things. I want a big day on Sunday. <laughs> I'll be doing a lot of things typically on Sunday, and it's this little small corner uh, down there. It's the weekend. It's whatever's left over. And we'll talk about how that becomes part of our mentality, though. <laughs> it's unfortunate that's the case. But Russia officially adopted that system. And so often we end up really relegating Sunday as the weekend but I try to remember, there's almost a dad joke in this, that it's the week begin. Sometimes I'll tell the kids on Saturday, see you next week. <laughs> of course, I'm talking about the week beginning the next morning when we get up on Sunday morning. And so we need to really kind of reprogram ourselves to think about Sunday as the week begin. <laughs> there's a great opportunity for Sunday to become a sort of first fruits as we're beginning our week together with the saints worshiping the Lord. I'd like you to really consider that important concept that Sunday is the first day of the week, and it's the opportunity we can give our first strength and our first fruits and our first thoughts and our first preparations to God above all else. That's what we're doing as we begin our week together this way. That's why it's such a joy for me to get to be here. Monday is the first work day for most people. I can see how people can consider it the first of the week. But in first century Rome, many people worked on Sundays. The Christians at the, at the outset of Christianity most of them were working on Sundays. It was just a normal work day. It could be perhaps the reason they were meeting at night in Troas. Why? Did you ever wonder about that? Why they came together at night and then Paul prolonged his speech until midnight and then Eutychus fell out of the window, probably worn out from working all day. It's a possibility. We can't be dogmatic because the text doesn't say that, but it's a good possibility for why. I think it also might explain why in Corinth, there was some issue that some had come, maybe they weren't working, and they had already taken the Lord's Supper. In fact, they'd eaten everything that was there, and the ones who came in later after work had no Lord's Supper. And so he says, wait for one another. <laughs> Let's do this as a, as a unit. Let's do this all together. Then everybody will have some, and we'll all be in fellowship with the Lord. And the ones who are coming in later don't miss out. It's interesting that it even indicates those would be the poorer people, perhaps, that had to work on Sunday, that they had nothing, and they were coming to take in this meal, and they get there, and there's nothing. So it's a possibility, but certainly Monday is the first work day for most people. In Brazil, interestingly enough, Monday is called Second Market, Segunda Feira. It's the second day. It's in their language that it's the second day, which really indicates that Sunday is a work day. Sunday's not first market. Sunday is Domingo. It's talking about the Lord. But technically, if Monday's second market, then Sunday would be first market. And in most of the third world, if we consider, Sunday is a day of work. <laughs> It's, most people don't have the luxuries that the United States and some other of uh, the first world countries, if you will, have that we can actually take some days off. For many people in the world, Sunday is just another work day. And so we need to quit just putting things through our lens of how convenient everything is. The point of all this is just to say that the first day that we find in the Bible is not based on our modern global economy. When we read first day, we shouldn't be thinking Monday, and we shouldn't be thinking, well, he meant to say Sabbath. It is clearly Sunday, even though that word is not used. So we don't find Sunday in the Bible, but that's clearly what we're talking about. Well, why is that so important? Well, the first day was first in creation. I want you to think about that. Maybe you haven't thought about that before. But as you go through the account in Genesis and those first few verses there, chapter 1 of Genesis, verses 1 through 5, that's the first day of time. When he gets to the end, he says, and thus were evening and morning the first day. That first day the first day. It was Sunday. He's going to rest on the seventh day after he completes this work over the next five days. He's going to rest on the Sabbath. 
We've already seen that. We pointed that out before. But that means he began the work of all of this physical creation on a Sunday. It's kind of interesting to think about that. What I want to suggest to you why that's important is that the eternal purpose, this eternal plan that God had for man was then set in motion on a Sunday. <laughs> we certainly can see that with the resurrection of Christ being on a Sunday, but I want to go further back than that. Because as God set in motion his plan, that involved this physical creation. Ephesians chapter 1, I want to look at just a few verses here that, that point out this concept of this eternal plan. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So God had this plan in mind before he made the physical creation, before the foundation of this world. Peter reiterates that idea, and we'll come back to these verses in a moment because they're so important. But 1 Peter 1 and verse 20, speaking of the Christ here and his sacrifice, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So God already knew what he was going to do and knew that Christ was going to come into the world before he ever made the world. <laughs> he had to, in fact, make the world for that part of the plan to work out. And in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, that really ties together these concepts for us. I think this is uh, something important just to consider. That the physical creation has an aspect that's, that's involved in this plan of God's salvation. Colossians 1, starting at verse 15. Speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. His plan that he developed in eternity before the physical creation existed was activated, was put into motion through Christ and for Christ as Christ actively created all things. It's interesting that John 1 begins with that concept. Why well, mention that Jesus is the creator? Certainly, we're talking about his deity, his divine nature, but it's also because through that creation that he then inserted himself into, he became the savior of that creation, according to a plan the Father had made before the world and this creation was ever made. I just want you to consider that the first day was first in creation, and that has to do with this plan of God and this eternal purpose. Certainly then the first day was first in salvation. Jesus arose, as we read at the beginning, on Sunday, the day following the Sabbath, very early on the first of the week, they went to the tomb, and there Jesus had risen as he told you, the angel said. He confirmed the thing that he had come planning to do. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, we find out that the resurrection is really the proof that he is the Son of God. He's declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. That's how we know absolutely He's the Son of God. Was Lazarus the Son of God? He resurrected. No, 
he was resurrected. Jesus said, I lay down my life and I take it up again. God, my Father, has given me this power. He is, has the deity in himself to do that. It's proof that he's the Son of God. It's resurrection. I said we would come back to 1 Peter 1. It's resurrection that brings faith and hope. Look how Peter ties these together. 1 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. He was made visible. He came into the world. Who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. <laughs> he inserted himself into creation. He came and said, I'm God in the flesh. He did all these things to prove his deity so you would not only believe in him, but in the Father who sent him. And he did all that he did so that in the end, our faith and hope would be in God. <laughs> and so his resurrection is what brings that faith and that hope. In fact, his resurrection, as Paul tells the Corinthians, is the first fruits. It's proof that others are also going to be able to resurrect. God has shown in Christ what he intends to do in us. Ephesians 1 really makes that clear, that the same power that worked in Jesus, God is now working in us to bring us to that blessing. But in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 20, after correcting this, this issue that the Corinthians were starting to doubt the resurrection, he tells them why it's so important. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. It's the proof of our hope and our resurrection. In fact, in Romans 6, we're buried into the likeness of his death, burial, and resurrection as we are buried in baptism. That's exactly what Romans chapter 6 teaches. The resurrection is a part of that. And again, it's all tied to the first of the week. Hebrews chapter 7 verses 23 through 25 indicates another reason that the resurrection is so important is that we now have a priesthood that's unstoppable. The other priesthood that was down during the Mosaic time, sometimes there would be bad priests. Sometimes you have a good priest and you're enjoying the relationship that you have uh, with God through him, and then he dies, and his son is a reprobate. <laughs> and then no one's taking advantage as they should. But in Hebrews chapter 7, starting at verse 23, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What a blessing. We've got a priest who's never going to leave the office, who's always going to intercede for us in Jesus Christ. The salvation not only was effected on a Sunday, but also was first proclaimed on a Sunday. In the book of Leviticus in chapter 23, we learn about the, how Pentecost is determined. It's kind of fascinating. It's determined based on the Sabbath of the Passover. Leviticus 23, verse 15, we're in the context here of the Passover and the, the week of unleavened bread. And he says, You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day, Pentecost, that's what 50 days is, after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. If it's 50 days after the Sabbath of Passover, 
that automatically is going to fall on a Sunday. <laughs> it's the day after the seventh Sabbath. Seven sevens are 49. You're going to have seven Sabbaths and then the Sunday, the day after that. So that in Acts chapter 2, when they come together in, uh, at Pentecost, they were told first in Luke 24, you need to wait for the promise of my father. <laughs> You're going to be waiting a while until that happens. It was 10 days after the last conversation we learned in Acts chapter 1. And on that Sunday then, the promise of the Father came. And what did they do with that promise? They preached the gospel. 3,000 souls were saved. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Those who gladly received their word as they're preaching based on this promise. All of this on a Sunday. So Sunday's pretty significant as we go through the Old Testament, tying it in to the New Testament. The first of the week is a blessed day. And of course then, what we'll see is that it was also first in practice among the Christians. Jesus met with his disciples on Sunday. There at the tomb, he already meets with one of the Marys. We're not going to talk about that one. But then twice in John chapter 20, he comes in to where the disciples are gathered with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, and he comes into their midst and he blesses them. Well, the first time, Thomas wasn't with them. So apparently the next Sunday, he gathers with them again, and Thomas is there. And Thomas said, well, I'm not going to believe unless I see the holes in his hands. And so Jesus says, well, here it is. <laughs> Come and see. And so he calls him Lord and Christ then. Back then, after that, we have the first meeting of the church, if you will. 3,000 souls gathered together on that Sunday in Acts chapter 2. Right after their conversion, there's the first meeting of the church. Then we see the church in Troas, as we'll look at that in a little bit uh, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. Something that's interesting to consider in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and this may be more important than it seems just at first reading. Concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. There's been lots of discussion about whether or not this was a temporary thing. Whether or not that is, I don't believe it was. I believe he's setting up this pattern. He's saying, there's a pattern I've already taught in the other places I've been. Two or three times in 1 Corinthians, he says, I teach the same thing in every church. You recognize that this is a pattern. There is a pattern that as you come together on the first of the week, that you will lay by of your means. Well, it indicates that the churches of Galatia, that, not the church, the churches, various congregations in the region of Galatia were already meeting on the first of the week. Where did they get that idea? Well, Paul has been ordaining these things as he goes along. And he says, I want you to do the same thing. You do just as they're doing. This is what the Lord has instructed me. The implication is that these churches already early in the first century are meeting on the first of the week. This is not a, a convention that came along later as some historians will try to invent. And there's lots of extra biblical evidence from early on, first century uh, forward, of this habitual practice of the church meeting on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Why is all that important? So I think it holds great implications for, for the Christian. <laughs> Sunday ought to be first in our planning as we're thinking about how our week is going to be spent. And I fear that it's not. <laughs> Sunday ought to be first in the planning for the Christian. We really plan for everything else, don't we? We make plans. We are a planning people. We have work coming up. We set an alarm. We don't want to be late to work because then we don't get paid. <laughs> We might even get fired for it. So we set our alarm. We want to make sure that that's done. We have to plan to set the alarm. That's at least done it the night before. Sometimes people set them for the whole week. If we've got school, we set an alarm so we can make sure we get up for that. We don't want to miss our test. For work, we're always doing things to make our work 
better in some way, some continuing education. For school, we're studying. All those things take planning and effort. If we play sports, we've got to practice. We've got to take time to train. If we watch sports, we've got to plan out when that's going to be on. We've got to make sure we're not somewhere else if we want to watch the game. If we take a vacation, we set money aside. Maybe for the whole year we're planning and setting aside for that. We're doing research on what's the best place. What are the best prices? What are the best hotels? What's the best way to get there? And sometimes we're willing to make the sacrifice to travel very uncomfortably long distances, driving a long way or riding uh, taking uh, trains or planes or automobiles or whatever they may be for long distances. We're willing to make those sacrifices because there's something we think is rewarding at the end of it. We'll plan for parties. There's professional party planners. That's how much we like parties. We prepare and plan in advance. We send out invites. We, we want everybody that we care about to be there. We plan a lot. I hope you see that. You're probably guilty of some of these. There's nothing wrong with planning for these things. That's good. These are things that we consider important the truth is, though, they're not the things that are really important, but we put a lot of priority on time for these things, on having our energy for these things, on putting our money into these things so that we don't miss out on these things that we think are important. And I hope you're already having your wheels turning about, do you put a priority on time, energy, even resources, maybe even money, so that you can make it here? In Brazil, a lot of our brethren spend a good amount of their resources paying for bus tickets so they can make it to worship <laughs> uh, or walking long distances. There was a study that a friend of ours was doing in Brazil. It was amazing. There was this couple that would show up late every time. They would stay the whole time, but they were always late. They were consistently, consistently late. One of the last nights of the study, our brother Dennis, who was doing the study, went over and began to talk with them about uh, how things were going with them. Turns out... They had been riding three hours one way on the same bicycle together <laughs> to get to the studies and then riding back home afterward. That's dedication. <laughs> they didn't have financial resources to be able to pay for bus tickets, so they took a bicycle. They wanted to be there for the studies. They were brethren in that town that weren't coming to the studies. <laughs> what a blessing for that couple that made that sacrifice to be able to do that. What a blessing for us when we really recognize the investment and the sacrifice of making an issue and a priority out of being with our brethren for studies and certainly for worship. What happens, though, is because we see Sunday as the weekend, a lot of times Sunday just kind of gets our, our leftovers. <laughs> you know, I've had a really busy week. I'm worn out from work. I'm worn out from partying on Friday and Saturday, whatever it is. And so I've got no energy left. <laughs> so I may may be able to make it. I, I might show up. I might rush in late, but I'm so wore out because I just haven't prioritized my time and my energy well that I may sleep through worship. I'd much rather you were here sleeping than not coming at all. Don't get me wrong. If you're working hard and this is the only time you've got that's down, come. Eutychus fell asleep. I don't think he was uh, berated by the Lord for that. He resurrected him again. If that's your situation, come. <laughs> but some people are just not planning. And so they're sleepy when they come to worship because they stayed up doing other stuff so late the night before. It's a lesson we're trying to drill into our children's head. Let's go to bed early on Saturday. Let's not stay up later because it's a weekend. Let's go to bed early on Saturday because Sunday we've got commitments. We want to be well rested. We even pray about that. that the Lord will rest us well so that we'll have the energy and the clarity of heart and mind to do the things we need to do on the next day. That's a good thing. It's a great sacrifice. 
Some people simply don't have any energy left by the time Sunday rolls around. They've had a busy week, so they stay at home <laughs> or they sleep when they're here. Some people have scheduling errors, and I want to put those in quotes because if we're making our schedule and we've scheduled not to be here for worship, it wasn't an error. We chose something else instead of this. I couldn't make it to worship because that day is the only day I could have washed my car. Yes, I've heard that excuse. (laughs) You could put anything in that blank. It doesn't have to be washing the car. There are lots of things that people decide, well, Sunday's really the only day I have for that. And so I know I ought to be at worship, but God will understand this one time. In a minute, I want to talk about some of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. The truth is, for the great majority of us, those who aren't policemen, firemen, or nurses, or doctors, even our work should not interfere with worshiping God on Sunday, together with the church. The ones that are here prioritize their time so they could be here today. The local church gets together and sets this meeting time. The first of the week God decided, but the time we meet together is what is deemed as most convenient for the greater number of members. I know it's not perfect for everybody. There might be a better time for one or two, but the majority says this is when we can be here. And so we ought to be here to encourage one another at this time. And if we're scheduling other things during this time, then it just shows that our priority is really not to be with the Lord. Jesus was really clear about how this comes about. It's not something that we just sit around thinking, well, I'm just going to schedule everything on Sunday and maybe once in a while I'll make it to worship. That's not what happens. But look at Mark chapter 4. We need to look at how some of this is really subtle that Jesus brings out. This is in the parable of the sower. And he talks about the third type of seed. Well, they, they look like they're doing okay. There's plants growing up from this seed, but they never produce the kind of fruit they ought to. And he says, here's the reason. These are the ones sown among thorns, verse 18 of Mark 4. They're the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world. Now, he's not even saying there's anything wrong with that. He does say, if you don't feed your family, you're worse than an unfaithful person. You've got to provide for your family. There are cares of this world that need to be taken care of. But then there's the deceitfulness of riches. There are these desires for other things that enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. We struggle with that. There are desires for other things. There are lots of things we could be doing with our Sunday afternoon. Some of it could be sleep. We could be watching a football game. We could be out washing our car, taking advantage of a last clear day perhaps before winter really falls on us hard. There's lots we could be doing. But we've made a good decision to be here today. We've made, I believe, the right decision to be here today. The question is, Are we offering to God just whatever was left over? You know, I've done everything I wanted to do this week. Hey, I've got some time. I could could go to church. There are people who live their lives that way. I know people very intimate to me that live their lives that way. Hey, I don't have anything to do on Sunday. I guess I'll go to church. That'll make me feel good. I feel like I really accomplished something this week. What? That should be the first thing in your planning, not the last thing. In the Old Testament, I want you to consider a stormy, dreary day. just happens to be the day that you're supposed to take your sin sacrifice down. <laughs> you've set this animal aside. You've made sure that it's spotless, without blemish. You're going to take it to the temple, but it's a dreary, muddy, rainy day. Now, the Lord knows your heart. I mean, you've prepared this animal. <laughs> when is it that your sins are atoned for? When you set the animal aside and prepared it and said, Lord, I'm planning on taking this animal to the temple? 
It's when you've gone to the temple. You've waited in a line in the middle of this rainstorm because there's other people who have sin sacrifices that day. It's inconvenient, but they're there. You've waited in line until the priest can finally attend to you and you go in, but not, it's not then. You don't just drop the thing off and leave. No, you cut its throat. You cut the animal into its pieces. You hand those to the priest. And when all is said and done, then your sins are atoned for and you're allowed to leave. I so think there's somebody in Israel that would have been sitting at home going, well, God knows my heart. I've got kind of a headache today. I don't think I'm going <laughs> to. His sins aren't getting atoned for. Not even in the substitutionary plan that was there. But what kind of things do we just presume God's going to overlook? I'm not going to go today because God knows my heart. I would go. I'm not saying there aren't circumstances in which we just can't come. There are legitimate health reasons there may be something that happens on the way here. Those are rare, but they, it happens. There are legitimate reasons. But we're going to look at a moment at a word where God says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That word is important. Well, what I want to show you is that in that Old Testament system, God didn't accept leftovers. It wasn't just that they had to go. They had to go well prepared and with their heart and with their sacrifice in the right state. Malachi 1, verses 6 through 8, the last book of the Old Testament. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name? Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? The blind and the lame, these leftover animals. You know, I can't really get any profit out of these. They're not helping me as working in the field. No one's going to buy them. I guess I could just take them and give them to the Lord. Then I'd feel like I did something good. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> That's a leftover sacrifice, and God would not accept that. He says, you're dishonoring me in what you're offering, defiled on my altar. But the sad truth is that some people simply plan things during worship. Wow. There's a couple of stories I want to tell in a moment about this, but in Hebrews chapter 10, we see that God insists. He desires, and yet he insists that we assemble together. And he says this in such an encouraging way that perhaps you don't see the, the way that he's berating at the same time. Hebrews 10 verse 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What a blessing that we get to be a part of. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Forsaking. That's a decision. Sometimes it almost feels like an unconscious decision, but that's a decision. I could be there, but I also could be doing something else. I could be there, but 
the Lord knows my heart. This time I'm going to do something else. That's forsaking. I need you to understand that's forsaking. <laughs> it's when you're unable to be here, when then literally there's no way you could make it. That's not the same thing. That's not forsaking. I believe in those cases there is forgiveness. There is grace. There's always grace even when we forsake. <laughs> but God's grace is extending over those who have chosen to follow His will and have made a priority out of doing so. When we decide not to be here, I want you to understand that's the case. You may fool yourself. <laughs> I just couldn't make it. I uh, scheduled wrong. You decided not to be there. Let's be honest. Let's on, analyze our situation. When we decide not to be here, we miss out on drawing near with others. We miss out on gaining strength against wavering. We miss out on considering one another to stir each other up to love and good works. We ourselves aren't stirred up if we're sitting at home. We miss out in the end on obeying the Lord. He says, don't forsake the assembling together. It's not me. It's the Lord. There's other things. Ephesians 5.19, we admonish one another through hymns and songs and spiritual songs. In Galatians 6, we help bear the burdens of the weak. One of the questions I have sometimes is, how do I know what someone's need is if I'm not here or if I never stick around long enough, either before or after, to talk with anybody? How do I know what their needs are? How can I fulfill that command in Galatians? for the, the ones who are spiritual to help those who are struggling or to bear the burdens of someone else. How can I fulfill that if I have no idea who are these people that I assemble with? That's only possible if I'm physically here. I can't do that on Zoom. I know there's a need, there's a use for Zoom. It's, it's been a good crutch at a time when a crutch was needed, but a crutch is not a permanent fixture. <laughs> Sometimes if that crutch becomes a wheelchair, you have simply forgotten how to walk. And we need to understand that Let's use a crutch as a crutch, but let's get back to walking as soon as we can. Let's be together as the Lord has commanded because that's what we need. I want to tell you two examples, a positive and a negative, about this idea of forsaking the assembly. I don't know if any of you is from Alabama, but we've got a lot of brethren in Alabama. And there is this thing called the Iron Bowl. It's the University of Alabama against the University of Auburn. And it's the biggest deal of the year for some reason down in that area. And it's on a Sunday usually. And there was a brother of ours who was part of this congregation. They were trying to decide on this particular Sunday for the Iron Bowl when it was Auburn and, and Alabama, and they were both going to see who was going to be the champion of the SEC. It wasn't just a regular Iron Bowl. This was a big mega Iron Bowl. Shall we change our afternoon worship time to a little bit earlier so people can go to the game? <laughs> and the congregation was meeting to decide this because it's a big deal. Traffic's going to be messed up. It's going to be a pain to get around if we stay later. And we'll miss most of the game. Even if we go home, we're not going to catch most of it. And so the congregation had basically decided, yes, let's, let's go. Let's meet two hours earlier. That way we'll be done. We'll be clear. One man raised his hand and said, that's not fair. <laughs> what do you mean? You are taking away the joy of sacrifice from those who would decide to come, even though they're going to miss out on the game and they're going to have to struggle through traffic and all the other things that are going to happen. To their credit, that congregation said, he's right. <laughs> the Lord has called us to make this priority. This is the priority on this day. I can't believe they were even trying to decide that. But boy, you see how the world creeps in and we don't notice it. <laughs> but I'm glad they made the right decision that day. And that church met. They said it, people got out of there in a hurry once worship was over. But people made the sacrifice, the sacrifice to come. But I want to tell you of another situation in Brazil football in Alabama is nothing compared to soccer in Brazil. 
those people in Brazil, their most soccer players are more famous than we give them credit for here because the rest of the world knows about them. We just don't know who they are. And Brazilians are crazy for soccer. And there was a brother who was coming to town, to Sao Paulo, from this little bitty town way up in the north of Brazil where the nearest congregation to the 20 people he met with regularly was a two-day drive. He had no contact with other brethren except about the 20 people that met with him. But he knew about the brethren in, in Sao Paulo, and he had some friends and family there, and he was coming to visit, and he was going to be able to come and worship with this church that was at the time meeting about 150, the biggest congregation of Christians in Brazil. And some of the well-meaning brethren of that congregation decided they were going to take him to a soccer game because the national team was playing that day. It was a Sunday. They missed worship to take this man who was coming with this great opportunity to be with his family that he never gets a chance to see. They took him to the soccer game. I was so disheartened by their decision. These were people that I thought would have done better than that. I understand the hype of going to a Brazil national team soccer game. It's a great thing. But so much better. The example and the encouragement and the blessing they would have given this man by bringing him to worship instead of going to the soccer game. The story of this man didn't end there. It ends tragically. It wasn't much longer. He completely fell away from the Lord. I can't help but think what an influence that would have been for his good to come and be with those saints in Sao Paulo. He died in a motorcycle accident with a woman on the motorcycle that was not his wife <laughs> that he was out having an affair with when he died. His older son saw his hypocrisy and fell completely away as well. Last I heard, his widow was still trying to serve faithfully with the younger son, who's now an adult, but struggling because of the kind of legacy that this man had left. Now, I'm not saying it's because of that one night they didn't go to worship that all this happened. But what I'm saying is, here was an opportunity he could have drawn near when he needed to draw near the Lord with others who were drawing near to the Lord. To have gained strength against wavering to have been considered and stirred up to love and good works instead of just having this night of great fun at a soccer game, a great memory to go back and tell people, but not something that built them up because that wasn't the priority. I'm ashamed to think about sometimes I haven't prioritized the Lord in my life the way I should have, but what a blessing that I've had strong brethren around who have always encouraged me to be together on the first of the week. I just want you to really consider that Sunday ought to be first in your agenda and your planning and everything you're doing. Whatever else you have in your plans, Sunday ought to be first. If something's going to interrupt your plans to be with the brethren, sometimes we don't plan to be with the brethren. Like, oh yeah, this is going to happen. No, plan it. <laughs> Write it down. Know where you're going to be on Sunday. If you're not going to be here, where are brethren that you're going to be with on Sunday? For your benefit and for theirs as you're worshiping the Lord together. And if something's going to interrupt those plans, that thing is going to be forfeited. It doesn't matter. You've got plans on Sunday. That's the truth. That's what God wants for us to do. Meeting with the saints should never be what's forfeited. So I leave you with this question as we look at that trip through the Bible and through history of looking at the first day of the week. Are God and his will for you a priority? <laughs> Is that truly what's of first importance in your life? I think that meeting with the saints is sort of a barometer of that. Not only on the first of the week, but we have a midweek meeting. I know some of you just can't. Work just keeps you from coming or whatever it may be. 
But for most of us, we could be here during the middle of the week. What I've noticed about Christians in the 25 years I've been serving, those who end up falling away are those who little by little leave off coming to the public studies. And then worship on the first of the week is no longer a priority. They come often, frequently, but it's no longer a priority. And simple things can pull them away. And before long, before they notice it, they've completely drifted from prioritizing anything for the Lord in their lives. Is God and is His will truly what is of first importance in your life? If you're not a Christian, then I'm telling you it's not. You can make it first in your life. You've got to make that decision. Jesus is calling you to obey Him. If you're willing to come forward confessing that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to repent of your sins and be immersed in water, baptized for the remission of those, we would love to help you do that this very day. If you're not a Christian, you certainly haven't prioritized the Lord yet. If you are, and God is not your priority, that needs to change right now. That needs to change this day. These brethren are here to stir you up to love and good works, to encourage you to serve without wavering in this prioritizing the Lord. I need your encouragement, and I know that you need mine, and I'm so thankful that we're here together to do this. Whatever way we can encourage and serve and help you, make it known. Come forward if you need to while we stand and sing this song for your encouragement. <clears throat>